Mark 10, 32 to 45. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to be sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that these who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. But for even, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. As a ransom for many. We're back into the Gospel of Mark after a short break last week, where uh, Max showed us how important the idea of the general resurrection is to us, which is no less than the culmination of God's plan for all creation. And that such a a future awaits all of us as God's people, no matter how this life plays out for us individually, is a cause for a huge amount of hope and anticipation and excitement. And I was thinking about the the Afro-American slaves last week and, and how important the idea of the general resurrection was to them. And it was a critical aspect of their um, religious beliefs and provided them with hope and comfort and a sense of uh, empowerment in the face of their impossible circumstances. And, you know, think of the songs that they sang, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, um, Wade in the Water, Gospel Train. Um, All those songs spoke about uh, the hope of the general resurrection to come, that they would be released ultimately from the pain of their suffering. And it sustained them in their difficult times. And so I encourage us to, to hope in the general resurrection uh, when we're um, facing difficult times too. So now we're back to uh, Mark chapter 10. And uh, we pick up the story after Jesus had gently but firmly rejected the rich young ruler's desire to have Jesus affirm his self-generated righteousness. And uh, Jesus uh, continues on his journey to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. And along the way, he tries to explain to his disciples what's going to happen to him. But his explanation clearly goes over their heads. And so today we're going to look at three ideas. The first is that we usually only see God's plan for our lives in hindsight. We usually have no idea what's happening in the moment. 
Second point is that it's better to follow Jesus into a storm than to strike out on our own in the mistaken belief that we know what's best for us. He's the captain of the storm. So wouldn't it be best if he was at the wheel of our lives? And the third point is that the reason it's best to follow Jesus is that he is more dedicated to us than we are. So those are our three points today. So in our reading today, it says uh, the disciple, Jesus and the disciples and his followers are, are on the way to Jerusalem. And it says that Jesus was out in front leading the way. And it's a bit of a strange picture, really, isn't it? Uh, most times when you're travelling with people in company, you're kind of walking and discussing with them side by side. But uh, it says that um, Jesus was out in front by himself. And the disciples uh, were amazed. Uh, and while those that followed them were afraid. So why, why was this? Remember the context here. The conflict between the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and Jesus had been building. And uh, at this point, the hostility towards Jesus among the religious, religious leaders was reaching an all-time high. And Jesus was heading right into the lion's den. And there was this uneasy sense that things were building to a head. Things were about to get ugly. And then it says that Jesus took the disciples aside and began to explain to them what was going to happen to him. And this is the third time he explained it to them. And he goes into even more detail, saying that the Gentiles would be involved too, the Romans, in addition to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, but that three days later he will rise. And I don't know about you, but I was wondering why Mark put this in his gospel. The third time Jesus explains to his disciples. What's the point? Is the point to make it clear how thick the disciples are, how slow they are? My old math teacher used to tell us, you're as thick as two short planks nailed together. Those are the good old days, eh? And that surely applies to the disciples here. Thick as two short planks, surely. Come on. What more does Jesus have to say? Why, why three times? And they still don't get it. You know, come on. I don't think <laughs> the reason why Mark includes this section again in his gospel is to show how thick the disciples were. The reason is, I think, that we may be encouraged when we read of their slowness uh, in our lives when we fail to understand what's going on in our own lives. And if you're anything like me, that happens quite a bit. No idea, really, what's going on. You see, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. And he also knew that his disciples were going to really struggle with everything they were about to see and hear and feel. Their rabbi, teacher and friend was going to be tortured and crucified in front of them. They were really going to struggle. And not only that, the disciples were going to desert the one they claimed uh, to love when he needed them the most. Right? They were going to be afraid and confused and ashamed. Right? I think ashamed is a big one. They promised Jesus they wouldn't desert him, that they would be with him. And then when the heat came on, they scarpered like rabbits. And that's cause for shame, isn't it? When you, when you put yourself forward as some big hero and then you 
choke when the going gets tough. So because of this, Jesus wanted to prepare them as much as he could. And so he took the disciples aside and laid out exactly what was going to happen. And you think about what he said. It's pretty clear that nothing about his crucifixion and death surprised Jesus. Right? It was premeditated, pre-planned, and pre-arranged. Jesus knew from the beginning what would happen to him and why it would happen. And yet he still went ahead into the storm... And, and despite their own ease, to their credit, the disciples follow. So there's a few points for us here, I think. First, sometimes Jesus will pull us aside and speak to us specifically about something that's going to happen. Have you ever had that happen to you? Have you has the Lord ever spoken to you uh, about the future of your life? I remember years ago, before the, the really difficult years of my life began, I was praying and God showed me a picture of a highway going straight into a huge dark storm. Kind of like that, but I was in sunshine at the moment. And I knew that I was about to head into a bad time. If I had known how much of a trial it was going to be, I might have been tempted to turn aside. But during those dark times, I was so thankful that the Lord warned me. He spoke specifically to me, uniquely to me. Like the disciples, over that time I had no real idea what was going to happen or what it was all about. But the reading today tells us that it's okay not to fully comprehend. It's okay to not fully understand what's going on in your life right now. The most important thing is to follow Jesus wherever he leads, even if that's into a storm. You see, the wonderful thing about God speaking specifically to us about our own lives is that it shows us that individually we are of interest to God. Right? God speaks specifically to you about your own situation in your own life. It shows us, shows us that we are of specific interest to God. And by showing me that picture, God showed me that he knew exactly where I was and where I was headed. He knew my individual circumstance was known to him, and that was a huge comfort to me, a massive comfort. You see, there are those who believe that some kind of God may exist, but he, she, they are not interested in us as individual humans. We're just too small and insignificant. But the Bible tells us differently. And it's interesting, I think, Sue, you read from Psalm 139, and it's... Um, I've, I've chosen the the first couple of verses from Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Now, there's nothing particularly interesting about whether someone sits or stands, is there? I mean, Sarah is is someone very special and of specific interest to me. But I don't really take notice when she's sitting or whether she's standing. Unless she's bringing me food or something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? But God finds it interesting because he wrote it here. You know when I sit and when I rise. God knows. He notices. And God also knows and understands all our thoughts, which is mind-blowing. But there's more here. I used to think that the words from afar, you perceive my thoughts from afar, those words mean distance. It's like God's looking down a big telescope and zooming in on somebody and and perceiving their thoughts. 
But when I actually looked at the Hebrew word, in this context, it's actually referring to time, not distance. Now that's interesting, isn't it? You perceive my thoughts from afar in time. What's afar in time mean? It means that before we were even born, God knew all of our thoughts, perceived them and understood them. That's crazy, right? Does it blow your mind? God is so invested in you that he knew and understood all your thoughts before you even existed. If anyone here today is in one of the storms of life and you're struggling to believe that God sees you and knows all about you and knows exactly what you're going through, remember these words. God knows all about you. And if you ask him, God will speak to you about your own individual circumstance. Um, one of our friends who recently got married was going through a real bad time about four years ago. She just had another relationship breakdown. She was heartbroken. She was um, getting older. Time was slipping, slipping by. And she really needed to hear from God what is going on. What is going on in my life? And so she went to um, a very godly woman and asked them to pray. And the, and the, and the woman said, oh, tell me a bit about yourself. And she says, no, you just pray and receive what you have uh, from God and you give it to me. And one thing that this lady says to her was, in 10 years' time, you won't recognise your life. And now she's sitting on a beach in the Maldives with her wealthy husband. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful story. But the point is, not so much that she's sitting on the beach in the Maldives, the point is that God knew her, knew her situation, and took the time to give her a message that it was okay. He was in control. He knew, he saw, he had a plan that was going to work out. And that gave her an incredible amount of hope, right? When you feel you're noticed by God, the most important and beautiful person in the whole universe, that's very, very comforting. So here's Jesus taking the time to speak to his disciples about what was going to happen to him and them. And he will speak to us too if we ask him. It might take days, it might take weeks. But I'm very confident that God will speak to us a tailored message from the one who loves us so much. And this leads me on to the second point, which is, it's better to follow Jesus into a storm than to leave him and try and seek our own way of safety and comfort. Why is that? Well, the storms of life are going to hit us, whether we're with Jesus or not. But if you're in a storm, wouldn't it be best to be with someone who is the captain of the storm? Someone who is in charge of the storm? Someone who can bring you through the storm? Bring the storm to an end? Someone who can steer you through it and bring you out the other side. Not only that, but someone who can make the storm work in your favour. In Romans 8.28, God promises that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And I'm so grateful that the Lord brought me through those bad times because he was drawing me closer to himself and grounding my identity in him. I know who I am now 
Whereas before that hard journey, I don't think I really did. I couldn't see what was going on at the time, but I see it now in hindsight. And on top of that, he was preparing me to handle the blessings that he was going to shower me with. And he was also preparing me to lead a church. And if I hadn't followed him into that storm, I wouldn't be standing before you now. In fact, I probably would be dead, no joke. Life's too hard uh, for me to handle by myself. I'm so privileged to, to still be walking with Jesus to share life with him on a moment-by-moment basis. And to, to be able to share life on a moment-by-moment basis with God, you need to believe that God is interested in you as an individual. Right? Otherwise, what's the point? You wouldn't, you wouldn't reach it. You wouldn't include him in your thoughts. You wouldn't invite him into your decision-making. So I know how much I'm loved by him. I know he's leading and guiding me and my family and my life is counting for his kingdom. And yes, life isn't easy. Life has storms. But I know that he's leading and guiding and that is a huge amount of comfort for me. So because of that, because I'm, I'm placing my life in his hands and he's called me to, to his kingdom and his, and his work, my life has a huge amount of meaning and as I get older and observe what is happening to the people around me, I'm realising more and more how much of a blessing that is. So many people just don't seem to have any meaning in their lives. But let's get back to our passage. No sooner has Jesus explained that he's going to allow himself to be tortured and put to death and that it's all part of God's plan. James and John asked that they get given the honour of being seated at Jesus' right and left in his glory. What? That's just got right over his, their heads, right? You would have thought that some part of the words mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him would have been a little warning bell. Ding, 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 ding. Being next to Jesus while that's going on is not a great place to be. But what do they do? Hey, can we be at your right and your left? Scratch your head moment. Perhaps they were so immersed in the idea that the Messiah would be some kind of victorious liberator that would rescue the nation of Israel from the Romans and, and he would be some mighty king and lord. You know, if that happened, yeah, yeah I could see his being by his side and his glory would be an awesome place to be. The fact is that Jesus' words just ran off their consciousness like water off a duck's back. And even, even when though Jesus responded by asking, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with, they still responded, yeah we can. What do these references to cup and baptism mean? Firstly, the term cup is a figurative cup. And it's usually something that God presents someone to drink. In the context of this passage, the cup is a reference to suffering and also to God's judgment. In the same way, baptism in this context doesn't mean an immersion in water. It means a calamitous experience of such afflictions that is totally overwhelming. It's like a tidal wave, boof, over you. And unfortunately, James and John get their wires crossed. 
and so that they can totally handle the exaltation that comes with Jesus' glory, but they totally miss the dreadful meaning of the cup and the baptism. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't try to correct their assumption? Did you notice that? There's a, hey, cup, not a good thing. Baptism, not so good. He didn't say that. He just says, you will. As it turned out, James was executed by King Herod 11 years later, and although John lived until old age, he suffered many persecutions. Once again, they couldn't see what was coming. They had no idea what was going on in the moment. But that's okay. Jesus knew. And they followed Jesus into the storm. And their main desire to be with Jesus was granted to them. When the rest of the disciples find out what James and John had requested of Jesus, they were outraged. What about me? When will I be exalted? Why should they get that position and not me? And Jesus calls them together and tells them that in his kingdom, if you want to be exalted, you must become a servant. And then he uses even stronger language. Whoever wants to be first must be slave. Now, even though there are different types of slavery back in those days, it's generally considered a miserable form of life. And then Jesus tells them something even more topsy-turvy. He himself didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does this word ransom mean? The basic idea of the Greek word for ransom is lutron. And it's a payment which sets something or someone free from some kind of bondage, slavery, captivity or obligation. In classical Greek, it always means a payment which releases someone from an obligation, which otherwise they would have to fulfill. Okay, so that's what the word means. So in those days, if you wanted to free a slave, you would pay the amount of money required to the current owner, and then they would be free. So an ancient papyrus reads, I have given Helene her liberty, and have received Lutron as the purchase price for her, and then the actual sum of money received is written. Right? So it's a payment. It costs. So instead of being a new master, a new lord that was going to lord it over everyone, Jesus takes their place as slaves. He releases others from their enslavement by paying the amount owed for them himself. Jesus gave his life a ransom in exchange for us. In other words, he makes a substitutionary sacrifice. Now someone might say, why is a substitutionary sacrifice necessary? Couldn't God have just forgiven everyone without it? And to get our heads around substitutionary sacrifices, Tim Keller says that all life-changing redemptive love, love that draws others back into relationship again, is substitutionary sacrifice, and then uses the example of forgiveness. So say somebody really wrongs you by spreading lies about you, defames you to all your common friends. The natural response is to strike back, isn't it? What do you do? Pretty easy. You head out there and start bagging them to all your friends. Explain what they've done, how evil they are. You badmouth them. You try and make them pay for what you, they've done to you. Right? But there's two problems with this. The first is that you'd be as bad as the person that you're trying to get back at. 
And secondly, if there's any chance of the other person having a change of heart and realising how poorly they have treated you, the only option is to forgive. Now in practice, this means you don't run them down to others, even though you might want to. You treat them well, even though it's really hard. And the, and the worse the, the betrayal or, or the, um, whatever, whatever has happened, the harder that is. When you do this, you suffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that all forgiveness is a form of suffering. Why? You think about it. When you stop yourself from making them pay, you're absorbing the debt. Right? You're absorbing it. You're taking it on yourself. You pay instead of them. And that's substitutionary sacrifice. No life-changing love. No love that redeems or changes another person is anything other than substitutionary sacrifice. Now imagine you add up all the wrong things that everyone has ever done in the history of the world into one gigantic ball of evil. It's impossible to comprehend the suffering associated with forgiving all of that, isn't it? It's, it's, just, it's impossible to comprehend. But that's what Jesus did, and that's why he did it. The reality is that everyone is forgiven, but not everyone has accepted that forgiveness. Why would you not accept that kind of redemptive love and forgiveness from Jesus? So today we've seen that just as the disciples were incapable of understanding their part in God's plan in that moment, so too we don't understand what God is up to in our lives in the moment. It's often not until we have the benefit of hindsight that we can look back and the pennies start to drop what God was doing and why. Not always. Sometimes these things happen that we will have to wait until we see the Lord face to face. But most times we can see what God has been up to in our lives. So it's okay not to perceive, not to understand what's going on in the moment. And I think that's why Mark included the story in his gospel, to encourage us when we don't understand what's going on in our own lives. The most important thing is not so much to understand what's going on in the moment. The most important thing is to trust and obey. To follow Jesus wherever he leads, trusting and doing what he says. It's better to be with Jesus heading into a storm than to leave him and try and seek our own way of comfort. He's the captain of the storm. And he will steer us through the storms of life and out the other side. <coughs> Why should we let Jesus be the captain of the storm of our lives? Because he is more dedicated to us than we are. <coughs> we are so precious to him that he was willing to give his life as a ransom for us. To be our substitutionary sacrifice. So I'd like to make two invitations this morning. The first is to anyone here that hasn't yet asked Jesus to be the captain of their life. If you sense that God is wanting you to do that this morning, why don't you come forward after the service and me and a couple of others will pray with you to receive Jesus into your life. The second invitation is to anyone here going through the storms of life and you're really battling and you need some kind of message from the Lord of hope and assurance. 
Would you like to come forward too? And we'll pray for that. Let's pray now. Lord God, thank you that you perceive and know each of us. You know exactly what we're going through. And Lord, you're wanting to be our captain of the storm. The Holy Spirit, would you move now across this room and touch each one of us. Give us that deep assurance that you know, you see, you're in control. You will steer us through whatever we're going through. You will work it for our good and you will bring us out the other side. Lord, we worship you and we thank you that you are more dedicated to us than we are. Lord, that you gave your life, your perfect, beautiful life, as a substitutionary sacrifice for each one of us. You paid so that we might, might go free. That we might not be under condemnation for all the wrong things, the evil that we've done. But Lord, that we might be perfect forever in your eyes. So, Lord, thank you and bless you for your wonderful love. In Jesus' name.